Please open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. While I give you a few moments to locate the book, I'll remind you that we're continuing our series called A Summer in the Miners. While we're doing an overview of the 12 minor prophets, Jonah is the fifth of the minor prophets that we are studying. And as has been mentioned many times before, it's a minor prophet in the sense that it's just a more brief message. It's not any less important than any of the other prophets or any other book in the Bible. No word of God is less important than some other word from God. But Jonah, however, is this one prophet that everyone knows about because of the amazing character of his story. And that's what we'll be looking at today. So what does the book of Jonah mean to people today? What significance does the name Jonah have for those who read the Bible with some degree of regularity? For many people, Jonah is just a myth, an incredible story about a man being swallowed by a giant fish and surviving. And for others, it's simply one of the other 66 books of the Bible, and only so uh, that people consider it to be the Word of God because it's in the Bible, and that's it. People read the Bible or hear it read by others, but remain mostly unfamiliar with the book of Jonah. James Hardy Kennedy, in his book titled Studies in the Book of Jonah, said, the dominant impression is that the story is so extraordinary as to be quite difficult to understand, quite difficult indeed even to believe. Its purpose is obscurely conceived in terms of a demonstration of God's unlimited and miracle-working power. Thus, its magnificent spiritual message on worldwide missions is not known. Its serious lesson on personal responsibility for giving the truth of the true God to all the peoples of the world is not learned. End quote. Some believe that there's not an Old Testament book with a more modern application than Jonah, and others say it's the most Christian of all Old Testament books. And regardless of whether you absolutely agree with that or not, my desire today is that the Holy Spirit will speak to us and help us see the rich treasures that this book contains, to understand the real message and meaning, and at the end, allow us to see a clear picture of an extraordinarily compassionate God who extends mercy to those whom even we deem worthless. So with that thought in mind, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading today Jonah chapter 3, verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 4. But we're going to be going through the entire book this morning. So I'll ask you when we're done reading to please keep your Bible open as we'll be going through the whole thing. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, Father, and uh, just dig back into history and look at one of these, these stories, Lord, that sometimes just seems unbelievable. Those of us who have read it and understand it at some level, Father, just uh, maybe stand in awe a little bit of, of what this prophet of yours desired to do and didn't desire to do. And I pray, Lord God, as we look through these passages today of Scripture, through this book, Father, that, Lord, we would think not only about Jonah's attitude, but about our own towards the lost, towards the perishing, 
towards those whom we deem to be not worth it. So, Lord, I pray now that you would bless this time in the reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take over. Lord, all the preparation and and the studying and the reading and the examining and everything, Lord. Father, you were sovereignly over that, but my role is now over. And I pray, God, that your Spirit would work in this place to challenge us, Lord, convict our hearts, speak truth into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The story came out of New York this past week. Maybe some of you had heard about it. I'm going to read the uh, news clip from the NBC affiliate in New York. A helicopter carrying a family of Swedish tourists on a sightseeing tour of the city lost power shortly after takeoff on Sunday and made an emergency landing in the Hudson River, authorities said. And a 22-year-old pilot who guided them all to safety is being called a hero. Pilot Michael Campbell made a safe, controlled landing in the river near 79th Street by the New York City Marina shortly before noon, a city official said. He, along with his two adult and two teenage passengers, were not hurt. Campbell said he did not think his actions were exceptional. I'm not a hero. I'm just a tour pilot, said Campbell, who flies for New York Helicopter Charter. There are many great pilots on the river that would have done the exact same thing that I did. Bystanders said Campbell made a split-second decision that may have saved his and his passengers' lives. Whoever that pilot was has to be a remarkable pilot with nerves of steel, said Stefan Kaplan. Campbell said his uncle was also a tour pilot and that he's been flying since he was 17. He's the youngest person flying tourism charters over the city. His quick-thinking bravery reminded some officials of the January 2009 day when pilot Chesley Sullenberger landed a U.S. Airways jet in the river after a bird strike cut power to its engines. All 155 people aboard survived. Another miracle on the Hudson here, said Fire Department of New York Deputy Chief Thomas McCavanaugh. I'd say so on a smaller version, but absolutely. Now, our story today is a rescue story, but it's more than a story of God rescuing a prophet from drowning. It's a story of God rescuing a city from destruction. Jonah had a responsibility as a prophet of God, just as the young man in this story had a responsibility to the passengers that he was carrying. I'm not a hero, he said. I'm just a tour pilot. In other words, as a pilot whose job is to ensure the safety of those he is carrying, why would he do anything else other than what he was expected to do? God doesn't need heroes, my friends, to do his work. He just wants his followers to say, why would I do anything else except what I'm expected to do? And why wouldn't Jonah do exactly what was expected of him? Well, we shall see. A little history and background for you folks who are history buffs. The name Jonah means dove, which is normally used in an admirable sense. We see that throughout the scriptures, particularly when like a dove descended on Jesus when he was baptized. But in Hosea chapter 7 verse 11, God refers to Ephraim like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. In other words, they were a fickle people, he referred to them as, going back and forth, wavering on their decisions. And I think this is fitting considering Jonah's behavior throughout this book. Many consider the book of Jonah to be a a work of fiction, mainly because of the extraordinary events. This book is difficult for people to wrap their mind around it. 2 Kings 14.25 says, however, that Jonah lived and prophesied during the long and prosperous reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled over Israel's ten northern kingdoms or northern tribes. And in Matthew 12.38-41, we also see Jesus' reference to Jonah as a historical person. 
and the events in Nineveh as an actual event that took place. Jesus said, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. John Piper said, Those of us who respect the wisdom of Jesus will be very slow to call his judgment into question. He knew the story was historical, and we should too. If you ask how a man can survive in the belly of a fish three days, the answer is he probably can't. Any more than a person can stay three days in the grave and live again. Jesus knew, he says, that this was no ordinary event. It was a miraculous sign of God's gracious and powerful intervention. There is no point in trying to explain it scientifically any more than the miraculous signs of Jesus' ministry. Jonah cried for help. God saved him miraculously with a fish. So Scripture testifies to us that these events took place, and it is as much a part of the Word of God as the other 65 books that God has given us. As far as Jonah, we place him around the time actually that Amos was preaching against the sins of Israel and saying that God was going to raise up a nation against her, namely Assyria. Nineveh was the chief city of Assyria, so about the time Amos was prophesying about the judgment to come in the land of Israel at the hand of Assyria, God told Jonah to go preach to, a, to Assyria's chief city. What makes Jonah, or the book of Jonah, I should say, so unique among other prophetic books is that the focus is on himself rather than the message itself. And this presents a stark difference from everything that we've looked at as far as the minor prophets go up to this point. Now, during Jeroboam's reign, when uh, Jonah was prophesying, Israel was experiencing a time of relative peace and prosperity uh, due to a period of weakness that Syria and Assyria were experiencing. And this allowed Jeroboam, although Second Kings 14.24 says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it allowed Jeroboam to increase the boundaries of Israel to where they had been in the time of David and Solomon, land that was taken during the reign of his grandfather Jehoahaz because of his sins. Now, during Jehoahaz's reign, the Arameans oppressed Israel, but Israel was spared destruction because of the Lord's compassion. Jeroboam's father, Jehoash, began to recapture the land that was taken, but it was Jeroboam who ultimately restored and expanded Israel's border even farther than his father. This was, as 2 Kings 14.25 says, According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Now, Israel, however, was spiritually poor during this time. They were idolaters, basically. They were full of rituals. The peace and the prosperity that they were experiencing really left them spiritually, morally, and ethically bankrupt. In fact, God would eventually destroy Israel in 722 B.C. by Assyria and bring them into captivity. Now, why say all of this? It's because Jonah was there during this time. He saw firsthand that even though God's people were spiritually poor, God still extended mercy to them and compassion to them. Although they refused to repent of their own wickedness, God still showed them mercy. And Jonah saw this firsthand as a prophet. Now, what about Assyria? Well, as I mentioned, during this particular period, uh, they were weak because of conflicts that they were involved in, famine that was widespread throughout their nation. There were many revolts within the Assyrian Empire. 
Um, even during that time, it's been documented that in 763 B.C., there was a solar eclipse that took place, complete solar eclipse. And so to a nation of pagans, many of who worship, whom worship their own god, an event like this certainly would have caught their attention. So that, coupled with the famine and the revolts and everything else, God you know, could have possibly used these events to help them be prepared for the message that Jonah was going to bring to them, this message of judgment and call to repentance. And Nineveh itself was located on the east bank of the Tigris River, over 500 miles northeast of Israel, and it was about 220 miles of present-day Baghdad, Iraq. So that gives you an idea of where Jonah had to travel to, where God was sending him. The Ninevites themselves worshipped the fish goddess Nanshi, and Dagon, who was a fish god that was considered half man and half fish. Now, Nineveh itself was built by a man named Nimrod. Anybody familiar with the name Nimrod? Okay, does anybody know what Nimrod was famous for building? He's famous for building something. Okay, all right, I'll tell you. The Tower of Babel. Nimrod was famous. He was the great-grandson of Noah, and he was famous for building the Tower of Babel. His story is found in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And... Um, this is the same Babel whereby God caused the languages of the world to be changed. So God pronounced judgment on this place. And then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, that Nimrod went into Assyria and he built Nineveh. And so Nineveh was a great pagan city. It was a wicked city known for its brutal, vicious behavior towards their enemies. Uh, they would torture, they would massacre, dismember, mutilate, decapitate, and burn their enemies alive. For you children who... Think of what Nineveh looked like in some cartoons you may have seen. These were not any fish slappers that you may have seen. I don't know who got that, but, but they were brutal. And for Jonah, they represented everything evil that Israel supposedly hated. And Jonah hated them. He didn't want anything to do with the Assyrians, and he certainly did not want them to repent. So I put this question before you today. How much hatred... Do you have to have for someone that you do not want them to repent and be forgiven? Just what I've said so far without even reading our story, what do you think about Jonah's attitude? And I want you to keep this thought in mind as we go through our story today because I'm going to come back to this question at the end. As John MacArthur says, he didn't want to take a message of hope. He didn't want to take a message of forgiveness. He didn't want to take a message of grace to these hated pagan enemies, a civilization of murdering terrorists, violent annihilators of everyone who stood in their path. He wanted God to judge them. He wanted God to destroy them. He had an aggressive hatred towards those people. What do you think about this? How could a prophet of God think this way? But what Jonah also knew, however, was that God was according to chapter 4, verse 2, a gracious God, as we read this morning, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, before we turn to our story, it's worth noting that all of the prophets of God were given the responsibility to preach not only to the northern and the southern kingdoms, but he also gave them prophecies concerning Ammon, Assyria, Babylon, Edom, Egypt, Elam, Hazar, Kedar, Medo-Persia, Moab, Philistia, Phoenicia, Syria, Tyre, and other nations as well. They ministered, however, within the borders of Judah and Israel, but they also spoke prophecies and made declarations directed towards their surrounding nations. Jonah's calling, however, was unique in that he was the only prophet that God sent to a Gentile nation to deliver his message against them. Part of the reason, however, that God sent Jonah to Nineveh really was to shame Israel. How so? Because a pagan city repented 
at the preaching of a stranger, whereby Israel would not repent, although their prophets and many of them preached to them over and over and over again to the shame of their nation. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Luke eleven forty-seven and 48, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Again, Dr. MacArthur says it was a rebuke against all those Jews who had nothing but animosity, bitterness, and hatred towards the nations around them and were unfaithful to take the message of the true and gracious God to those nations. And why would they? Why would they take a message of a mighty God who reconciles people to himself if they themselves were living in rebellion against him? Think about that. So with our background in place, let's turn to our story here. We'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Now Joppa today is Jaffa. Okay, it's located about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And this was, by the way, the very same place that Peter was in Acts chapter 10 when he saw a vision And men from Cornelius' house came to him and asked him to come visit him. Who was Cornelius? He was a Gentile. And so here Jonah is in Joppa trying to flee from the Lord. And it's the very same place that the Lord commissioned Peter to go preach the first message to Gentiles. Jonah didn't, but Peter did. I just love providence. So that's Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So, the first point in your outline is Jonah's flight. Jonah's flight. Running away from God never works. It only reveals a heart that resists his sovereign plan. Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The message to Jonah was clear. Preach a message of judgment and a message of warning. And this is the only time in Scripture that you will see a prophet disobey a clear commission from God. Even Jeremiah, for all of the rejection and the ridicule that he had endured, he still said in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot... And so I ask you, does your heart burn when you fail to speak the things of God to the lost of this world? Do you echo the words of Jeremiah here? Or are you content with just placing yourself as far away from the most unmistakably clear commission from Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel to all creation? I want you to see right away three things that stand out in this text here that we just read. First, Tarshish is mentioned three times in verse 3, to emphasize that Jonah had absolutely no intention of going to Nineveh. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Where do you guys think Jonah's going? Okay, he's not going to Nineveh. Do you get that? He's going to Tarshish, okay? Now, the exact location, we just don't know exactly where Tarshish was. Perhaps it was a place called Tartessus, in southern Spain, 
And this may have been the, the, the most distant city known to Israel at this, at this time. So let this not be lost on you. Where Jonah was going was what he thought was going to be the farthest place from the Lord that he could go. All right? Now, second, you'll see that phrase, from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then you go down to the last part of that verse, he paid the fare to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So you see that twice. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So Jonah was not going anywhere that God wasn't there already. And third, I want you to see that twice it says here that he went down, okay? This is important. He went down to Joppa, and then he paid the fare, and he went down into it, into the ship. Many of you may understand the word, this phrase, went down, as a euphemism for death, okay? Um, And thus, each step, really, that Jonah is taking here in the opposite direction of where God's sending him is really one step closer to death that Jonah is taking, okay? So he went down. Let that not be lost on us as we consider our own personal walk with the Lord. Let's continue verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This was a supernaturally created, violent storm that was orchestrated by God himself. I want you to see this, okay? The first four words, but the Lord hurled. You see that? This was the Lord's doing. Lest you think that God has nothing to do with storms, catastrophic events, quote-unquote natural disasters. Job 42, 11 says that it was the Lord who brought evil or disaster on Job. And Isaiah 53, 4 and 10 say that the Messiah was smitten by God and afflicted, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So let's not blame Mother Nature. Let's not blame, you know, we don't know how it happened. It was the will of the Lord that this took place. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. At this time, as I mentioned before, individuals often had their own personal God that they worshipped above all others. These sailors were probably Phoenicians uh, who were legendary for their seamanship and their navigating skills. So if they were afraid, you have to know that this storm was something of the likes that they had never seen before. Okay, Because they pretty much were not afraid of anything. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down. This is the same idea as what I said before. Went down. Another step Jonah takes closer to death into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Literally, how is it that you're sleeping during this? Everything I just described to the point where the mariners are afraid, Jonah's sleeping. And they come down and say, How is it that you're sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now lots were often used to discover 
God's will oftentimes. You'll see in Scripture that the lot was cast to determine which goat became the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.8, to indicate which portion of the promised land was given to each tribe, Numbers 26, Joshua 15, 16, and 17, and to identify Saul as God's choice for Israel's king, 1 Samuel 10, verses 20 through 24. Lots were also cast to determine which families would live in Jerusalem, Nehemiah 11.1, and to identify Matthias as the 12th disciple after Judas committed suicide, Acts 1.26. However, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So by the purposes of God, it was Jonah who was sorted out of the group by the casting of lots. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Now this term Hebrew is always used in interaction with foreigners, either being used by foreigners to describe Israelites or used by Israelites to describe themselves to foreigners. So I am a Hebrew and I fear, this word yare in Hebrew is the same word used in the sense of worship. So I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. By the way, the very sea by which Jonah was trying to escape God's command. He's telling these men, that he worships the God who made the sea that he is now in, trying to run from God. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid. In verse 5, they were afraid. But now, after hearing about this omnipotent creator of all things, they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Now, apparently, Jonah said more about his God than the text shows us enough so that these men were indeed exceedingly afraid. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now this word hurl here is the same word that you'll see in verse 4 to describe the storm that God brought on them. So in essence what Jonah is saying, what God brought on you, you now bring on to me. Okay, that's, that's really what he's saying here. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So in an apparent attempt to appear noble, the reality is that Jonah would have preferred death over going to Nineveh. This is really what he's saying here. Think about how bizarre this is. Right? What is he saying? Throw me into the sea. I'll, I'll die rather than go to Nineveh. This is a prophet. This is a prophet of God. What do prophets do? They preach. They warn. They pronounce judgment. They call people to repentance. This is a prophet. This is what prophets do. Nevertheless, verse 13 says, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, normally sailors like this would have done exactly what Jonah asked them to do. They just would have picked them up, thrown them overboard, and not had a second thought about it. Whatever else Jonah told them about his God was enough for them to have enough concern for Jonah's life and now even their own to try to save themselves. Therefore they called out to the Lord, verse 14. And now, notice this, instead of each one praying to his own God, they call out to the Lord, Yahweh. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These pagan sailors already understand 
the sovereignty of God. Do we? So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Once again, that same word. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord. How? Exceedingly. Who did they fear? The Lord. Exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So now what the sailors understood was that the Lord was involved in this. This violent storm, the likes of which they've never seen, the words that Jonah spoke to them about his God, the lots that were cast. Thus their response was to offer sacrifices and make vows to the Lord. You know, maybe even a little revival broke out that day on the boat. Like John MacArthur says, maybe we'll even see these sailors in heaven someday. Who knows? If Jonah, if the people of Israel would have only listened to the words of God. Today, if only we would listen to the words of God, maybe revival would break out in our day. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God was not going to allow Jonah to die. Once again, we see the sovereign work of God appointing a fish. Now, just to clear up any confusion that you may have about what type of fish this was, the Hebrew word here is the word dag. It's a general term for all kinds of fish, okay? No specific fish is mentioned in the Old Testament or in the New Testament by name, so we just don't know exactly what kind of fish or creature this was that swallowed Jonah. All we know is that it was big enough to do so, and God created it. That's what we know, okay? So that may alter your drawings a little bit, but hey, that's okay. So as we look at chapter 2, the story now turns to Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. The second point in your outline that I want you to see is this. Jonah's fervency. Jonah's fervency. God, who is full of compassion and mercy, hears our desperate cries despite the depths of our distress. Now this prayer that follows is a prayer of thanksgiving. While Jonah appears thankful that the fish has saved him, what we don't see is Jonah actually acknowledging his sin or explicitly repenting of his actions. He's only thankful that he did not drown. I think sometimes this is at the heart of many prayers of many people today. Prayers like, Lord, thank you for saving me from hell. Thank you for all the good things you've given me. Please continue to bless my life and the life of those around me. Amen. Is that a bad prayer? No. Not necessarily, but what's missing here? There is no, Lord, I've sinned against you today by failing to honor you with my life. There is no, Lord, forgive me for not witnessing more, even though your word specifically commands it. There is no, Lord, my life belongs to you and I have failed to follow you as I should. And there is no, Lord, I repent of these things. Forgive me and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. And this is what I think the very same thing we see here in Jonah's prayer. Verse 1. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, one step closer to death. Sheol, meaning the realm of the dead. I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, if you skim past this, you're going to miss what Jonah is actually thankful for here. The fish that God appointed to swallow Jonah is the answer to his prayer. The water is the judgment. Just like the story of Noah building the ark because God is going to judge the earth and wipe out mankind. How? By water. 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter refers to this event and says in verse 20 that eight people were brought safely through water. What were they brought safely through? Judgment. What do we do when we baptize people here? When they go down into the baptismal waters, buried with Christ in baptism, our sins buried in Christ by the judgment that God, that Jesus, endured for our sins. Do you see the gospel here? And now Jonah, not floating in water, but sinking to his death, and his only hope for being saved is God himself. Verse 3, look at the details of Jonah's situation. For you, the Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains, describing that he was at the bottom of the ocean. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, the doors of the gates of Sheol, the realm of the dead. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. God used this fish to save Jonah's life. His deliverance or his salvation, you could say, had nothing to do with him, but rather the grace of God alone. Our salvation has nothing to do with us, but the grace of God alone. Jesus doesn't need our acceptance. We need his. Ephesians 2, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Amen? As far as Jonah was concerned, he was dead. And if you remember what I said earlier, at first he wanted to die rather than go to Nineveh. But staring death in the face, it appears Jonah might not be so quite ready for his life to be over here on earth. And by faith, Jonah believes that his life is going to be spared. Once again, John MacArthur, the man who recoils at the thought of God extending mercy to Assyria now knows that God better extend mercy to him or there's no future. Now he wants to have a God of grace and a God of compassion and a God of mercy and a God of loving kindness. And he knows that his only hope is in the goodness of God. Our only hope is in the goodness of God. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And here Jonah may be thinking of the Israelites, the audience of, of his book. God shows mercy to both these sailors and mercy that he'll show to the people of Nineveh. The Israelites, however, refused to repent of their idolatry and were eventually sent to Assyria 
as exiles. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And what the sailors had done in chapter 1, verse 16, Jonah now finds himself doing, making a vow to the Lord. We don't know specifically what that vow was. Maybe it was to fulfill his promise to go to Nineveh after all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word vomit is reminiscent of language that Jesus uses for the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So once again we see the Lord as ruler over all, commanding the fish and the fish obeying. God taught Jonah that if you leave the Lord, you leave mercy. And he has filled Jonah's mouth with thanksgiving. God answers prayers in order that thanksgiving will abound to his glory. But regardless of what Jonah said, we're going to see that Jonah's heart was still filled with hostility towards the people of Nineveh. Even so, in his grace and his mercy, God delivered Jonah through the actions of the fish. So as we look at chapter 3, the third point in your outline I want us to see is this. Jonah's faithfulness. There is one human heart cry that never fails to reach the ears of God. It is the voice of genuine repentance and confession of sin. God hears this. And this was clearly demonstrated in Nineveh when Jonah preached there in the name of Yahweh. And it was demonstrated on a colossal scale. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So the story sort of picks up speed from here. Jonah, at this point, he's, he's done running from God. He agrees to go to Nineveh. Uh, as God had originally commanded him to do. And somewhere here between verses 2 and verses 4, God gives Jonah words to what I suppose could be the shortest message sermon ever preached. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's pray. Some teachers and scholars hold to the idea that Jonah actually continued to preach this message as he walked around Nineveh, but the text does not give any clear indication that this is what took place. But regardless, the word of God was spoken, and the text says in verse 5, and the people believed God. This could be one of the most understated verses in Scripture to describe just an, an incredible miraculous working of God. Over 100,000 pagan fish worshipers of Dagon and Nanshi, idolaters, a vile, wicked, evil people doing horrific things, slaughtering people, decapitating them, dismembering them, and they believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then in verse 6, the word reaches the king He repents and calls for fasting and mourning. And get this, verses 8 and 9, he says, 
Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his anger so that we may not perish. The term yeshuvu or turn is used here with the idea of repentance. What a contrast with the typical response that God's prophets received when they preached at home. This is the third time in three chapters that we see pagans concerned that people not perish. How is God not involved in this? And by the way, this same language is the same language we saw last week in Joel chapter 2, verse 14, with regards to the call for Judah to turn back to the Lord, when it says, who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave blessings behind him. Same language here. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he would not do it. This is where we picked up our text this morning. And so although it initially appears that God's message is one of unconditional judgment, there is indeed a condition here that Jonah was fully aware of, which we'll see in the next chapter. And this is what the people of Nineveh were praying for. Because they repented, God relented of the judgment that he was going to bring them. There's no natural explanation for this. I talked earlier about all the things that the nation of Assyria was going through, but quite frankly, there is no natural explanation for this, for a conversion on this kind of scale. There is only a supernatural explanation, and that is that God determined to save that generation of people during that time, that city during that time. That's the only explanation for it. And he used a rebellious prophet to bring a rebellious people to faith in himself. Just staggering. What an amazing story. Now, I do want to add, though, that not many years after this event, Nineveh once again fell under God's judgment and for their refusal to repent. And as we'll see in about three weeks when we study Nahum, uh, God judged them for that. But that future event in no way diminishes what has taken place here. So let not that be lost on you, what God has done here. So let's look what's happened here in the first three chapters. Jonah disobeys God. God puts him under the threat of destruction. Jonah cries out in his distress. God answers him and saves him from sure death. And so with the Ninevites. They disobeyed God. God put them under the threat of destruction. They cry in their distress. God answers them and saves them from sure judgment. God showed mercy to Jonah so that he would learn to show mercy to the people of Nineveh. You see how this happens? The same events are taking place, but God saved Jonah's life so that he would learn to show mercy to those whom he hated. Well, naturally, you would think that after witnessing an event like this, Jonah would just head back home and practically be unable to contain himself with excitement over what God had done. You'd think he'd want to go home and say something like, hey, you know those pagan, God-hating Assyrians in Nineveh? Well, God sent me to them. I preached a little bit, and they all repented. Every one of them, even the king. They all put on sackcloth and ashes, and they mourned, and they prayed to our God, to Yahweh. But no, not Jonah. So the last point in your outline I want you to see today is this, Jonah's failure. As recipients of God's compassion, we dare not complain against his sovereign extension of mercy to others, no matter how undeserving. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The Hebrew literally says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. 
God saving the Ninevites was an exceedingly evil thing that happened according to Jonah. What God did, okay? And he prayed to the Lord and said, and here's the initial reason Jonah attempted to flee to Tarshish, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The root of Jonah's anger is that God showed compassion to these people. In chapter 2, Jonah was thankful that God showed him steadfast love, but now he's angry that this same steadfast love has been extended to the people of Nineveh. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is deep. Take my life from me. He wanted to be killed the first time when he asked the sailors to throw him overboard, right? Then he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh. The Lord didn't let that happen. He survived. So now he's in Nineveh, and now he wants to be killed again. Jonah basically was a racist, is what he was. Prejudiced, prideful. Don't miss this. He did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew God would have mercy on his enemies. He did not want their repentance. He wanted their destruction. He couldn't tolerate the magnitude of God's grace to a bunch of barbarians. He wants nothing to do with this. He would rather be dead than see people saved. What he hoped for is that he would preach about God's imminent judgment, set up a booth outside the city, wait 40 days, watch judgment come, and laugh about it. That's really what is going on here. Take my life. And God says in verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? Is there a reason for this? There's no answer to that. He's simply asking a rhetorical question to expose his prejudice. Let's finish off the story. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And some of your translations may use the word evil there, to save Jonah from his evil. There's a much bigger thing that's going on here than just the fact that Jonah's hot because of the weather and God's providing shade to cool him off. Jonah is hot right now, if you get what I'm saying. He's hot under the skin, okay? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What is the Lord doing here? Jonah had not yet obviously learned, so God continues here with his object lesson. Just like God had mercifully appointed a fish to save the rebellious Jonah, so now he appoints a plant to give the resentful, sulking Jonah shade. And Jonah's happy. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Do you almost laugh when you read this? It's almost comical at this point. What exactly is going on here? So how does Jonah respond? And he asked God that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. This is now the third time Jonah has asked to die. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. First, he's angry that his shade is gone. Second, he tells God that he pities the plant. And now God has him right where he wants him. Verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And I love what John Piper says about this. He says, quote, Then God comes, and with his word, lays bare the heart of Jonah. In essence, what he says at the end of chapter 4 is this, You pity the plant, and get angry when I destroy it. But when I pity 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, you get angry with me? Jonah, I did labor over Nineveh. I did make it grow. And I've been at work on Nineveh not one night, but for years. And shouldn't I pity its 120,000 people and all its cattle? Shouldn't I be angry if the city fails to give me glory? If you were angry that your plant no longer gives you shade? Who do you think gave food to the cattle and wisdom to the calves so that they know how to suckle from birth? Was it not I, the Lord? I don't want these cattle to go up in the smoke of judgment. I want them to be enjoyed by a repentant and redeemed people. I created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Jonah, forsake your racism, forsake your nationalism, and follow me. You owe your life to me. Therefore, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful Luke 6.36, end quote. And that's how it ends. We don't know what Jonah's response was. We don't know if he ever repented of this wicked behavior of his. So what is this book about? Well, first, the book is, of Jonah is clearly about God and his mercy, not being confined to Israel, but extending to any people who will trust in him and repent of their sin. That's a great Old Testament gospel message right there. Faith saves, not your nationality, not your heritage, not your upbringing, your church attendance, your Bible reading, your money, your good works. Faith saves. And God is the one who does the saving. He is the one who rescues Jonah. He is the one who gives Jonah the message. He's the one who makes people hear the message, believe the message, repent and be converted and come to worship him. It's about God. It's about God as a sovereign creator. It is God who incites the storm. It is God who calms the sea. It is God who prepares the fish. It is God who has the fish swallow Jonah. It is God who makes sure Jonah survives. It is God who designs the fish to throw Jonah up on the land. It is God who causes the people of Nineveh to repent. It is God who grows the plant that shelters Jonah. It is God who sends the worm that eats the plant. It is God who whips up the scorching heat the next day. It is God who does all of this. It is God who has power over creation. Even the pagan sailors and the barbaric Ninevites recognize God as the creator. The only person who resists God is Jonah. Not the sailors, not the Ninevites, the prophet of God. So why Jonah then? Why didn't God just kill him and be done with it? Because God is in the business of taking flawed people with no apparent ability to do anything that could possibly be pleasing to him. And he takes us and he took Jonah and he does a mighty work that can only be attributed to a mighty hand. And that should be an encouragement to each and every one of us sitting in this room today. Right? And second, this book is also about Jonah and about you and about me 
and the way that we ought to be if we claim to fear and serve and follow and worship a God with mercy like this. So should we say God is merciful? Yes, absolutely. But what are we being taught here? You be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. God answers us in mercy to make us merciful. God had mercy on us in spite of our guilt. God had mercy on us in spite of his own sentence of judgment against us. He saved us from impossible circumstances. He delivered us when death was certain. Jesus saved our lives. We were thankful for his mercy and we vowed our loyalty to him. Are we merciful to others as he has been merciful to us? How could a prophet of God think this way? I asked you to keep that thought in your mind as we went through this message today. Maybe the better question is, how could we think this way? What stops us from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone? What is the worst thing that the enemies of God can do to us? I mean, would we dare say that we have hatred towards someone if we really don't want them to repent and be forgiven? Do we not want to take a message of hope? Do we not want to take a message of forgiveness? Do we not want to take a message of grace to the perishing of this world, those, according to Romans 1, who are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, those who are full of envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do they deserve God's judgment? Yes. Do they deserve to be destroyed by God? Yes. But so do we. When we look at them, we should see a shadow of who we used to be and have such compassion on their lost souls and in spite of their wickedness and their hatred towards God, we give them a message that causes them to begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, whereby God transforms that heart of stone to a heart of flesh according to his power and might. Should we not have pity for the city that we live in? Should we not pity Decula, Lawrenceville, Atlanta, Athens, Georgia, the United States, the world? Should we not? And lost person, it could be that God is extending his hand of mercy to you right now. He has been very patient and kind with you. If the Lord has opened your mind and your heart to understand something about your own sinfulness that you've never considered before, I implore you, be reconciled to God today. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It is appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. God has decreed judgment and it is as certain as I am standing here today. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. No sin will be hidden. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth in the form of a man, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, and the Bible says that he was tempted in all ways that we are, and yet without sin. About 30 to 33 years into his life, he went to a Roman cross, not because he necessarily broken some civil law, but because the Jews 
called him a blasphemer, which was punishable by death. Why? Because he made himself equal with God. He hung on that cross. And for all the beating and the torture and the mocking and the scoffing and the nails that he endured that day, that was not the worst suffering that Jesus endured. It's not the worst thing that he was dealing with. The worst thing on that day that Jesus dealt with was the wrath of God the Father being poured out on him full measure for the sins of his people. That was the pain. Well, three days later, he rose again from the dead. The empty tomb, my friends, is proof that God accepted Jesus' payment for the sins of his people. If the tomb's not empty, God did not accept his offering. But the tomb is empty. He walked on this earth for 40 days and appeared to over 500 people. And then he ascended into heaven. The men were standing around looking, and an angel appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring in the sky? This same Jesus who you saw go up into heaven will return in the same way that you have seen him go. And so he is returning. Hebrews 9.28 says he's not coming back, though, to deal with sin. He's coming to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. And I pray that every breathing body in this room today will be excited on the day that Jesus returns. Or if you take your last breath, that you will be pleased to see your maker face to face. So now he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for a time to return of the Father's choosing. Someone said, the book of Jonah has no conclusion. And the final question of the book has no answer, except from the one who realizes the fullness of the mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, what is left to say but your word? What can we bring, Lord, as an offering that even comes close, Lord, to standing up to the power of your word to change lives. Father, I pray, Lord, that if anything today was spoken in error, Lord, that those words would just fall away and that all that would remain, Father, are your pure and holy words, those which have the power to save and the power to kill and destroy. I pray for those, Lord, in this room today who may not be reconciled to you, And I pray for their salvation, God. I pray today is the day that they will call on you for mercy. And for those of us who have been redeemed, I pray, Lord, that we will not walk out of here thinking that this was just another good story to listen to, but we would take it as a personal challenge for each and every one of us, Father, to show mercy to others in the same way that you have shown mercy to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.